The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Welcome back from vacation, Monty. And also with you. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll speak to a gathering of other folks coming back from a hiatus. 33 Holly Street in Northampton is a large collective arts facility housing many arts organizations, and we'll get the new lay of their building and how it affects the arts in the surrounding area. And Mr. Universe, Hampshire College's Salman Hamid returns us to the moon since several nations are remembering that we can also go to there and it is much closer than Mars. But how do we honor that space and who gets to decide which belief, company, or nation takes precedence in using lunar spaces? But first, a solar showdown in Shootsbury. Yeah, it's not quite like that, but, but yes. Nyla Marrera is a science writing specialist at Smith College, where she directs the journalism concentration and a recent article in The Shoestring, an independent news publication in Western Mass that provides in-depth journalism covering local politics, culture, and power. is called The Forest and the Trees, Western Mass's Solar Sighting Problem. It's a beautiful, sunny winter day today with all the snow out there until more inclement weather and strange happenings with our environment begin later in the week. But... Nyla, you've been looking at the idea of siting solar in large capacity in places like forests and farmland. The forests and the trees. Tell us about large-scale versus small-scale solar and how it's impacting our communities that you look at in this article, like Shootsbury, uh, like farmland in Hadley, and, and what you've discovered. Sure, yeah. So, you know... Solar siting has become an area of controversy within, even within the sort of what we would consider to be the green community, right? Because there's a fundamental problem with solar. It takes a lot of land. Um, you know, we think of solar a lot of times as the solar panels that we put on our roofs, um, what we would call residential solar. I think that's where a lot of us have the most exposure to it. But the amount of solar that we can put on a single roof is pretty small. And for the goals of the state, which are to become net zero carbon emissions by 2050, it's so far proved very insufficient. Mm -hmm. And so the other place to put solar is in these enormous installations that we call ground-mounted uh, installations. And unfortunately, the cheapest and easier place to put these is in previously forested land, which leaves us with this real conundrum. Okay, are we going to chop down trees in order to put solar panels there? And as you can imagine, that comes with all kinds of trade-offs and questions about environmental sustainability. One of the organizations that you talk about in this new article in the shoestring is uh, WD Coles, which has a mm -hmm. major uh, impact and influence in Western Massachusetts. Tell us what their relationship is to these large-scale solar products and what you've been learning about. Sure. So WD Coles is the largest landowner in the state, um, which gives us a sense of scale, uh, both <laughs> in terms of the kind of land that they're able to um, sort of marshal and control and make decisions for and also uh, their their relative wealth and power in the state. So what's happening with WD Coles is that they have been proposing to put about 360 acres of solar panels in some essentially pristine uh, forest land in Shootsbury uh, and a, a little bit spilling over into Leverett and Amherst. And the 
townsfolk there are unsurprisingly a, a bit leery about this, um, to say the least. There's been uh, activism that's really sprung up trying to prevent these installations from happening. They would be the largest solar installation uh, collectively in the state. And the forest in Shutesbury is identified by the state as being critical and core natural habitat. Um, so this is really nice forest land that we're proposing to cut down for these for these solar installations. Um, so the land would be leased by Pure Sky Energy, which is uh, owned by a couple of large multinational asset management firms. Um, so this is really being painted as a big guy versus the little guy environmental conflict here. But that seems an easy thing to see on the surface. You've got a larger solar company making a partnership with one of the largest landowners in Massachusetts, and that seems pretty easy to to assess. Has there been any effort to shrink the size of what they're proposing? I don't know of an effort exactly to shrink the size of the proposal, but I will say that Coles has placed another 5,000 acres of forest land in the area under conservation. So... Obviously, 5,000 acres versus 360 acres, kind of the line there is, why are we worrying about this very small amount of land uh, comparatively, and shouldn't we be doing our part in Massachusetts to sort of bear some of the burden of energy production, given that, you know, a great deal of energy production today is what someone phrased to me as an environmental disaster, right? (laughs) Um, Fracking for natural gas. So yes, it's a a difficult question. (laughs) Um, And the, the real question that I tried to get at in this piece is, don't we have any other options um, besides tearing down this this forest land? You know, I'm I'm a big bird watcher myself. I, I love being out in the forest. I'm a big nature aficionado. I'm a science writer. I'm a nature writer. I love nature. <laughs> it just seems crazy to me um, that we would tear down trees for energy production when we do have other options, right? And so this is the big question in the piece. What options are there? Why aren't we taking those options? Why are we focusing so much on forests? Why is it currently so much easier to put solar panels in forests? And also um, a subsidiary area where a lot of uh, solar is happening is in farmlands, which are also threatened um, landscapes for us in the state. And how can we move away from this? And can we? We're speaking with Nyla Marrera, science writing specialist at Smith College, where she directs the journalism concentration in this very type of writing. And there's a new article in the shoestring called The Forest and the Trees, Western Mass's Solar Sighting Problem. The agricultural option is another thing that's been touched on that we've mm-hmm. talked about on this show before. Um, Meadowbrook Farm. When we talked with Meadowbrook Farm, <laughs> one of the issues that they brought up was agricultural land going to to solar efforts. Mm-hmm. A thing that you bring up in your article is the issue there, not just of losing the, la- the farmland, but if you do manage to repurpose that land, the limited options that you have, have there been other repercussions from having agricultural land turn into solar farms that you saw and weren't able to include in this article? You know, farmland is an interesting problem. Uh, I think that one thing I did not talk about in the article, and 
I really think people downplay this, and I don't know that they should, is really the aesthetic value of the land that's being covered by solar panels, right? I mean, of course, we want to put priority on we we need to preserve farmlands, right? We have limited amounts of the richest soil, uh, especially here in Western, Western Massachusetts, where a lot of farmland is along the Connecticut River, right? We want to be encouraging uh, new kinds of local farming, like organic farming, rather than using this land for energy production. Um, you know, these are two parallel strains of the environmental change we want to be making. But also, communities do have some kind of right to have jurisdiction over the aesthetic value of their landscapes. There's this pejorative term, right, NIMBY, not in my backyard. It's particularly associated with wealthy communities who sort of step in and prevent projects that would be of benefit to everyone in order to preserve their sort of perfect, pristine place where they live. Uh, but, you know, Patrick Donnelly, who is a um, conservationist out in uh, Arizona, who's been pretty active both in promoting green energy, but also protecting environmentally critical landscapes, he said to me, you know, we're naturally a rural species, right? Humans like to be in nature. They like to see beautiful things around them. It's not surprising that we want to preserve the natural habitats that give us peace, that give us pleasure, that give us a sense of worth of life, right? That is an interesting point, I think. And the article that we're speaking of is called The Forest and the Trees, Western Mass's Solar Siting Problem. It's in The Shoestring, which is an independent journalist publication based in Western Mass. You do talk with the Sykowskis in, in Hadley about some solar they have on farmland that's not farmable, essentially. And Going back to the aesthetics of it all, is it the same argument that, say, the Kennedys were using off the Cape to say, <laughs> you know, if you put up a wind farm in the ocean where this wind is the best wind to make electricity, it'll ruin my view. Where does it get pushed over from benefit to all of humanity versus benefit in aesthetics only. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, the Sykowski farm in particular, um, we had an interesting conversation about that solar installation because he said he, he really didn't get much pushback from neighbors. Mm -hmm. He had one neighbor that was briefly concerned um, about the view. But as he said, you know, when that neighbor moved in and built his house, that affected <laughs> Sykowski's view too, right. right? Which I thought was a, a great perspective. Um, you know, that... That particular solar installation is fairly small and mm -hmm. it's pretty set back um, mm -hmm. from everything. And as you mentioned, it's on land that um, is is less fertile. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Joe is farming it. He has broccoli there. Um, he's planning to plant blueberries. There's shade tolerant plants that um, that are, are kind of happy under solar panels. And indeed, some plants even do better with a little bit of shading. But I think the question really comes in when the when the installations are really big. Um, I know there was a there was a big controversy about a much larger installation um, in Northfield with the um, Latoile family, uh, and that ultimately it looks like it's going through. But it is going to eat up a big chunk of space. Mm -hmm. um, and solar panels aren't the most hideous things, but they're you know they're going to change the character of a neighborhood um, for sure. Going back to the idea of citing these large-scale solar arrays in forests, mm -hmm. and we're speaking with Nyla Moreira, the journalist who's written an article about this in The Shoestring, um, some of this is being aided by the state itself and the Dover Amendment. Meanwhile, there are mm -hmm. a bunch of bills that are going forward to try to give a little bit more local control over the regulation. Can you talk about this from uh, like a legal standpoint, the Dover Amendment and these potential bills? That sure. Many from our Western Mass delegation have put forward onto Beacon Hill. Yeah. So the Dover Amendment is um, a law that was established in the 70s or 80s, I believe, when solar was really starting to first 
get its legs, right? Uh, The Dover Amendment prevented unreasonable restrictions on the development of solar power in the state um, unless it was for reasons of um, health and safety. So For humans. For for humans. (laughs) Exactly. We don't care about those other things. Exactly. We're here for the people. (laughs) Just the people. Yeah. Only the people. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think this really came about at a time when solar was nascent. It was in its infancy and it was facing enormous headwinds, political headwinds, right, from um, the fossil fuel industry, from the political apparatus at large, from all of the global warming denial that was out there uh, that mercifully is finally starting to decline. And so at that time, I think the Dover Amendment was really working hard to protect solar from being shut down for these sort of spurious reasons um, related to the political climate at Mm -hmm. the time. Um, But now we're in a very different regime. First of all, solar is rapidly becoming more economic. It's uh, starting to compete with fossil fuels even without subsidies in some areas. And we're now looking at a situation where development for solar itself, much as it is green, it's still development, right? And uh, solar alone is responsible for a quarter of all of the forest clearing um, for any development-related purpose, right? So that's a lot. Yeah. Um, yes. If you think about like building malls and building houses. 25% and, of it is for solar. Exactly. Yeah. A full 25% is just solar alone. Um, and so we're really losing a lot of forest to this purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the state has a goal of protecting 40% of its forest lands by 2050. Uh, we We've only got about a quarter of it protected now. So it's a moment when it's time to revisit the Dover Amendment. And that is happening. Um, Aaron Saunders uh, is a state rep who is um, proposing an amendment to the Dover Amendment (laughs) um, (laughs) that would allow communities to control solar, not just for human health and safety, but also for, um, you know, environmental health. And there are plethora of bills also coming down the pipe. As you were uh, noting earlier, five out of 12 of them are by Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts lawmakers, not just trying to empower communities to prevent solar um, in their neighborhoods and on their forest lands, but I mean, not so much on the, in their neighborhoods, but on their forest lands, but really trying to incentivize solar in better places, rooftops, parking lots, damaged lands, right? I mean, I was walking down King Street in Northampton the other day towards a doctor's appointment and just staring at all of the shattered, broken down asphalt in these enormous empty parking lots and thinking to myself, what is this land doing here? Right. Yeah. There's one of those on my on my street that stick has that Mm. was a parking lot at some point and has never really been repurposed. And after like reading your article was thinking like that's kind of exactly what we should be more of what we should be looking for. But back to um, the subsidies that you mentioned, there was an initiative in Massachusetts to aid residential and business placement and installation of solar that has lapsed. Mm -hmm. Along with the um, adjustments to the Dover Amendment, what are we trying to do to reinstate those things happening? Because it seems like, again, like urban areas, like with a lot of flat space, perhaps on rooftops, might be a good place to offset some of the forest development. Yeah. So this is a this is actually a sort of a prime moment for reconsidering how we incentivize solar development, because um, there is a commission that has been meeting a state commission. It's called the Commission on Clean Energy Infrastructure Siting and Permitting, which is a big mouthful 
mouthful, and I had to look at it written down here to get it out of my mouth, I have to admit. Um, So this commission is planning to put forward um, recommendations by March 31st for solar siting. And so, you know, some of the things that people have talked about in terms of um, incentivizing solar on other kinds of landscapes, one would be the the solar loan program, which gives individuals a a break, um, a tax break for putting solar on their homes. There's consideration around net metering, which is the amount of solar that your home can generate that you will be compensated for. Uh, So if you limit that, right, it it disincentivizes homeowners from putting the amount of solar on their homes that they would have otherwise um, if they're producing all this extra energy that could have financially rewarded them, and it's it's not financially rewarded them. There's some bills looking towards incentivizing parking lot solar, um, which un- unfortunately putting elevated solar over parking lots is pretty expensive. Oh. Um, there's, there's engineering challenges. The solar panels have to be able to handle snow loads and wind loads. Um, they eat up space in the parking lot because they have whatever bollards or pillars or that, that hold them up. Um, you have to have more special more skills, skilled crews in order to install them. And so it's about, I think the numbers are uh, $5 a kilowatt versus two or two and two fifty a kilowatt in for ground mounted forest solar. So, you know, that really disincentivizes especially profit seeking companies from pursuing parking lot solar, but the state has a role there to play in terms of encouraging that kind of development. Random, not so random aside, do you know how many state buildings slash municipal buildings currently have solar? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know that number off the top of my head. Yeah, uh, should be a requirement. I mean, I feel like mm-hmm. this that should be one of the first places that we can easily offset some of this, but mm-hmm. maybe I'm just asking people to put their legislation where their actual buildings are. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think a lot of, you know, there's I think there's several hurdles there. I think you're absolutely right. I think this is the kind of place we should be looking, right? Um, one hurdle is capital accumulation. Mm-hmm. A lot of smaller communities just don't have the money to pay for solar arrays, especially larger scale ones. There are mechanisms for sort of joint capital accumulation, like green banks, for example, have been increasingly popularized as a way that multiple stakeholders can uh, accumulate capital together in order to install more expensive solar projects, even in sort of distributed fashion, right? So maybe you put a little bit on this building and a little bit on that building and a little bit here on this parking lot or whatever. But I think that this is really somewhere we should be looking in particular because a, a statistic that I found really engaging is that if a large non-local multinational or whatever firm comes into your community and installs a large solar project, 85% of the financial benefits of that go back to the company and only 15% stay in the community. You know, solar is a technology that does not have to be done by single companies. We can distribute it. You know, we have that technology. We have that know-how. It's an opportunity for communities to 
benefit from their own energy production, right? Those benefits could all be staying local if we were creative about how we enable communities to take advantage of that. Nyla Marrera, a science writing specialist at Smith College, where she directs the journalism concentration. Recent article in The Shoestring, which is our independent news publication in Western Massachusetts. It's community supported, just like this radio station. You can find out more about this article, The Forest and the Trees, Western Mass's Solar Sighting Problem, at the shoestring.org. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. From who owns the forest to who owns the moon. Up next, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on this morning's moon mission, which will aim to inter human remains on the moon. And later in the show, following a nine-month round of renovations, 33 Holly Street is open once again. What is 33 Holly, and why is it important to arts in Northampton? We'll find out when we talk with the arts organizations who make 33 Holly their home later in the show. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Back for more kitchen table astronomy at the Amherst kitchen table of Hampshire College and Five College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe. While I was on my break, I did something that I know we want to do together with the creator of this, and we've pitched it a million times, and I'm speaking to you, Mass Mocha, we want to make it happen again. I went to see the incredible artist Lori Anderson's immersive exhibit, to the moon. It's first of all, beautiful, gorgeous virtual reality experience, but also brings up a lot of ideas about colonization and what it means for our heavenly body that belongs to all of us humans here on Earth. But there are two moon-related missions, one of which launched this very morning, that uh, kind of uh, lend itself to what is the moon to us. Right, well, and I haven't seen... You haven't been there at all. I haven't been, been there. been waiting so that we can do it with Laurie Anderson. Right, I have been to Masmoka many times, yeah. but for this uh, virtual reality about uh, ownership of the moon, I was scheduled to go actually in March of 2020, as people say. Well, remember, in March of yeah, 2020. Yeah. So this was one of those things, actually, I had reserved it. And since then, they shut it down, and now it is reopened, and now we are just waiting for the invitation. Okay, Laurie Anderson. <laughs> Hi. I'm not home right now, but if you want to leave a message, just start talking at the sound of the tone. No, I would love to do that, and partly because the next couple of years are going to be crucial in thinking about how humans are going to behave and how humans are going to be in space. And that is because there are a lot of missions that are going to the moon, including uh, human space missions by NASA, so Artemis 3, so that's going to be the lander before that, uh, Artemis 2, maybe this year, at the end of this year, is going to go in orbit around, but Artemis 3, maybe 2027, it's expected to land, and China is also planning on going there. So there are a lot of questions about who owns the moon, hence the Laurie Anderson piece that you are talking about, a question about how to think about these questions, about the relationship between uh, nations and private space companies, who's going there for profit. So with that big frame in mind, and, and we are going to be talking about these issues more and more, um, And because I'm, I'm interested intellectually as well, how people think about uh, human presence in space, but also it is actually important. And if you are concerned about it, raise your voice now, because once people start doing things over there, then the question would be, well, it's the precedence. Well, so this is the time to actually change the coming precedence, <laughs> meaning to say, take action now. And it is in this context, there was a rocket launch just uh, this morning. Uh, there is a lander 
that is going to the moon on a United Alliance launcher. And they are carrying five of the NASA instruments. They are carrying other experiments as well. But it actually is carrying human remains, ashes, which is actually kind of cool, I have to say. That's one of those things that's like, ooh, wouldn't it be cool to send your ashes to space? And that is linked to, there are a couple of companies that do space burials. So, for example, Celestis, and there is Elysium Space as well. So in this particular case, it's Gene Roddenberry's uh, ashes. Uh, of Star Trek fame, creator of Star Trek. Uh, uh, I mean, so when you hear that, you're like, oh my God, Gene Roddenberry's ashes in space, perfect. So is Uhura, uh, who died recently. One of the people on the bridge. Captain, what's happened? And Scotty. The transporter lock might have been affected by the ion storm. <laughs> and, I mean, you can actually go through that because all of them are uh, sort of like, you know, going there. Uh, except for William Shatner. Who went to who, actual who actually, space. Who went to actual space. Mr. Man! So, uh, and there are other people also. You can actually pay for that. So I think there are 70 people whose, um, whose ashes are there. But also, some people's DNA is also going to be in orbit. Including Gene, uh, including Gene Roddenberry's son. Um, I think Eugene Roddenberry. So it's all really interesting. And you go like, okay, well, okay, that may be cool. Except uh, that right before the launch, actually, uh, yesterday or day before yesterday, the Navajo Nation actually came out and opposed that. And they actually wanted to delay the mission, partly because they think that well, if you are putting human remains on the moon, uh, it's going to desecrate the moon, which they consider as a spiritually unimportant place and things like that. Now, because, I mean, so native burial grounds are an important conversation that happened here. Usually they think that is sacred ground when there has been remains interred and they don't want that disturbed. Right. So by making the moon sacred ground, they think that that would be desecrating this object that is beyond all of us spiritually, I guess, maybe? Right, so, so that's where it gets complicated, right? Because you have the moon, which is important to many people. I mean, it's the, I mean, when we think about the world heritage, by the way, that is what counts as sort of like the moon is spiritually important to a lot of people. So how do we treat that? Who gets to decide what the moon should be, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so people have talked about, well, hey, you, we can put ads over there, for example. You, you can project an ad onto the moon, US, part of Asteroid City. Right, you can, uh, US itself in the early 1960s thought about, well, uh, using a hydrogen bomb, exploding it over there so that to send a message to the Soviets, because at that time, US was behind in space race. Who gets to decide that, right? And so there are a number of these questions, including, for example, m mining on the moon. Uh, if there are human settlements, which there are expected to be, uh, you know, when uh, NASA sends or Artemis program and they send astronauts or Chinese astronauts, it will be there for a permanent settlement. It's not going to be like Mars where there are millions of people, but it's still it's going to be a permanent presence. Uh, it's more like maybe perhaps like Antarctica. Nevertheless, if you are there, you are using that. How does that mean? How are you going to carve out places over there? Are you going to be living in there? How are you going to be living in there? So and so forth. Who gets to decide that? So right now, a lot of these things are governed by the only space treaty. This is the space treaty, uh, outer space treaty that was signed in 1967, before even the first landing on the moon. Uh, and so right now, the questions are, what is governed by the outer space treaty? Because sometimes it is a little bit ambiguous. One of the reasons why all the countries actually signed it was because of some loopholes that were in there. So for example, no nation can own any piece of the heavenly bodies, including the moon. 
but what does that mean own? And so like, you know, what if you mine something and so on and so forth. So those questions are coming up. This particular mission uh, is just one of the first missions this year. Right now, there is a Japanese mission, uh, which is uh, going to be landing on the moon, I think uh, at the end of this week. That mission is demonstrating that you can actually accurately land on the moon. Their target is basically a football field. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's very hard to target because moon has rocks, moon has sort of like, you know, the landings can be tricky, including the famous Neil Armstrong landing, actually, that uh, towards the end, he had to actually manually take control. So can you do that? It's demonstrating you can land very you know, narrowly. And then you have another mission being launched in mid-February, uh, which is also going to the moon. That is going to towards the South Pole more south than where Indian mission Chandrayaan-3 landed. So it's going even uh, a little bit uh, south of that. Uh, That's a company, it will have a lander called Astroforge. But that particular mission is also carrying another spacecraft that is going to an asteroid. Near-Earth asteroid, a small asteroid about probably around smaller than 300 feet. But Monty, you're going to ask, hey, which asteroid is that? Which asteroid is that? Great question, Monty. We don't know because the company, and it's again, it's a private company. They have not disclosed the name. They're keeping it secret. And I think it may be partly a PR thing, but nevertheless, what they are saying is they want to test out mining. So this is a metal rich asteroid uh, and they don't want to give their competitors an edge beforehand. And so they said, well, we are going to make it public, but not right now. So this is an, again, an interesting question. Wait a minute. You don't have to like announce, you don't have to, you are sending a mission to the solar system. With some nations, which nation again? Uh, Lander? Well, so this one is uh, is the US. Uh-huh. So this is a US mission. And it's saying and there is a private company that has another a spaceship in it that's going to go to an asteroid, but they don't have to disclose which asteroid it's going to. And I think because the rules are not clear. And so I think this is where the private companies, how they interact with, uh, with, the, with the nations. I mean, I think that becomes really important. But, uh, but a lot of astronomers are a little bit upset about it. And the reason is because these metal-rich asteroids are actually scientifically really important uh, because they hold clues. Uh, we think that some of these metal-rich asteroids were formed. They are sort of like leftover cores of protoplanets. And so we think that they can actually provide clues about the conditions in the early solar system. There is a NASA mission to such an asteroid on its way, actually. That's the Psyche uh, asteroid. But it's going to take, I think it's going to get there in 2029. This mission actually is going to go there within a week, the Astroforge mission that I just mentioned. And it's uh, because it's looking for an asteroid that is actually pretty close by and eventually... Who knows what they're going to do, but my guess is that this is their first mission to test out what can be done in terms of mining. But eventually, I can imagine what they would try to do, or somebody would do, is to bring asteroid close to the Earth to actually use... Tow it to the Earth? My guess would be eventually, and those are harder technologies, but that's what would be the ideal conditions, ideal situations, because then you don't have to haul the the material all the way from uh, farther away. But of course then you better make sure that when you are towing it, you are not actually towing it too close to the earth, so and so forth. Fascinating questions, but none of this is science fiction. 
this is happening and there are some serious concerns as well i mean there is there is always this balance between hey this is really cool to oh wait a minute how should we think about it and i think we really have to figure out the balance in there and we have to get engaged and as citizens as citizens of this planet as well not just citizens of the us but citizens of this planet as well we should engage more with these things this thing is coming artificial intelligence chat gpt that is a great example where i think people reacted a little later it's like oh my goodness this is already there with the space aspect with commercial space this is happening but we can still especially on issue of the moon we can still raise our voices if you have concerns what kind of concerns you should have without diminishing the excitement i think excitement part is there but it's far better and far more exciting if the excitement is done in a respectable way which uh which makes everybody happy and if you want to take a local look at these issues from an artistic standpoint go on out to mass mocha in north adams sign yourself up for the virtual reality experience to the moon created by laurie anderson i won't spoil it for you because still don't don't spoil it but i should mention there is one other uh, local connection too with this current mission because uh, douglas trumbull ah uh, the space uh, the uh, the special effects person for kubrick for example in 2000 main space odyssey he also did my friend's film the man who killed hitler and then the bigfoot and alien i think and and all of those sort of like you know great visionary his ashes are also on the <laughs> are on this moon mission wow well, i think i'm going to let this one go then <laughs> so yeah so there is a lot of local connection <laughs> and just for entertainment's sake uh, i should mention that the lander the peregrine lander actually that's going to be uh, landing on the moon that i mentioned uh, on this mission it's going to be land uh, in a place called sinus viscositatis which means uh when you eat cheese from Wisconsin and it clogs up your sinuses. There you go. So it is Latin for bay of stickiness. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the moon was made of cheese. So I don't know whether that helps or hurts the case for sending ashes to the bay of stickiness. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I want to actually think about that. We just learned this afternoon that the company behind the US's latest mission to soft land on the moon is battling to save the project. According to the BBC, the Pittsburgh-based Astrobotic says its Peregrine spacecraft has a faulty propulsion system which unless fixed will prevent a lunar touchdown. Up next, what do available potential enterprises Northampton Center for the Arts and Northampton Open Media all have in common? A building that's just finished remodeling and is opened back up to the public. We'll talk about the import and impact of 33 Holly Street. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte and I'm Cleese Smith. 33 Holly is the first project of the Northampton Community Arts Trust, adapting the model of conservation and community land trust, the Arts Trust. acquired this distinctive centrally located energy efficient building removing it from the speculative real estate market to serve as a common resource to be protected in perpetuity for acts of creativity and imagination the building is stewarded by three long standing community arts organizations who hold long term leases with the arts trust the northampton center for the arts the ape 
and Northampton Open Media. Following a nine-month round of renovations, 33 Holly Street is open once again. Among the upgrades and improvements to the spaces include final finishes, <laughs> including catwalks and acoustic paneling, to the 3,000-plus square foot workroom, a new green room, catering support space, new box office in the lobby, and lots more. Here to talk about the facility and its upcoming official reopening during the January 12th Art Walk this weekend are some of the folks leading the three organizations that help make up the Northampton Arts Trust. Kathy Couch, co-director and steward at APE Available Potential Enterprises. Uh, Joanna Faraby Walker, um, managing director of the Northampton Center for the Arts. And P. Albert Williams, PAL, P.L. Williams, executive director of Northampton Open Media, formerly Northampton Community Television. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having us. What did we get wrong in the intro? Anything? No, yeah, okay, it's so great. It's like that <laughs> was half of what I was going to say. I was like, okay, yay. Now what are we going to talk well, about? Well, let's start with you then, Kathy, because I'm um, APE. Uh, people from this area may have heard of this gallery. I mean, why do they call it Gallery Ape? What does it stand for? What does it mean? Why did it used to be on the top floor of Thorns? Is it still the thing that's on Main Street in Northampton? And what does it have to do with 33 Holly? So well, maybe there go all my questions. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Answer He's them all in that order. All of us. Great. Well, it is a common question. Um, APE stands for Available Potential Enterprise as you said, and um, it's rather cryptic, but essentially means that it's always been a space that um, was founded by Gordon Thorne, who is one of the owners of Thorns, and it always has provided space for artists to explore whatever potential they might have, um, really focusing on making sure that space exists where people can imagine and try new things and, and all of that. So um, we did move from the top floor of Thorns in the mid-2000s and open the gallery on Main Street that we now know and love um, and have been part of the founding of the Northampton Community Arts Trust um, since 2010 uh, to look for another space where we could do live performance, which used to be part of the activities we did in Thorns. So... Um, all of that has led to 33 Holly. Um, so the founding of the Arts Trust and then finally purchasing 33 Holly and the renovation and now the workroom. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I don't and know it's not that you it. don't do live performances in your in your Main Street space. It's That's just right. Khalees, you've been in one. I have done yeah. one there. Yeah. And it, it's just that it is significantly harder <laughs> to do it in that space. It, it is much more of a gallery space and has a big window onto Main Street and all of that. Um, so this will provide us uh, much better digs to, to do some live performance and exploration and making. So we're excited. That's Kathy Couch from the APE, which is one of the arts organizations that's housed at 33 Holly. We're also speaking with Joanna Farabee-Walker, who's the managing director of the Northampton Center for the Arts. Now, I know the Northampton arts scene pretty well, so it can be really confusing for some people where they're like, Oh, the Northampton Center for the Arts. Aren't you the people that put on First Night two weeks ago? And <laughs> four years ago, the answer would have been yes. Right. But the last, the last couple of weeks ago, the answer is now no. Yep. Yes. There's, so there's an arts organization that is part of the uh, city of Northampton. That is not you. So what is the Northampton Center for the Arts and your mission uh, as you're housed at 33 Holly as well? Well, the Northampton Center for the Arts has also been around for a long time. It's the same organization that you know and love that used to be on South Street. Um, so the organization itself has been around from since 1984, 40 years. Um, we did used to do First Night, but then when we lost that space on South Street um, and had no space for a number of years, the Northampton Arts Council took that 
program over and continues to do that. It is confusing because First Night, we are still, 33 Holly is still a venue for First Night, but the Center for the Arts does not manage that program anymore. But what we do do is um, sublease the beautiful spaces at 33 Holly to local artists to do a wide variety of things. We have four spaces there that we can make available for reasonable rates, thanks to the setup that the Arts Trust has created for us. Um, we have the Flex Space, Eli's Room, which is like a multi-purpose space, um, a dance studio, and then the brand new <laughs> Art Gallery nice. that is another, along with the Workroom Theater, is the other big improvement that you will see when you come to 33 Holly, hopefully soon. Maybe even this Friday for uh, for the return of Arts Night Out Northampton, which has always been a big thing for the Northampton Center for the Arts, I know, and I'm glad to see that that's happening again. Pal, P.L. Williams the executive director of Northampton Open Media, what's your relationship to this building, 33 Holly? So it is our new and more public-facing um, arm of our organization. We've existed in the high school, um, Northampton High School, since 2007, mm -hmm. um, and opened up shop in 33 Holly Street uh, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, right before that all happened. I don't know if you remember that, but what was that again? Uh, it was Did something. something happened three years ago, <laughs> right? So, um, so it's so it's more accessible than our high school location. So we do a lot of the same things that we've been doing all along, which is teaching people how to make film, make video, resourcing them. You can come and get free classes. We're free to join. Um, free access to cameras and lights and audio and editing equipment and all that sort of stuff, and we'll teach you how to use it. So we're doing all that, but we're also housed inside of this beautiful, amazing art space with these other arts organizations and with a lot of artists coming through the doors. You know, we, as you know, we've done we've done a lot of public art projects over the years, remaking films, having you know a film festival, all sorts of different things, um, and so uh, we're looking to do more making and to 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 meet more people in that building, in that space, and to come up with new ways that we can be of service to them and that we can help them to make great stuff. Do you miss the barrage of teenagers? Well, we still have the barrage of teenagers because we still have the location in the school, and we ah. still will have the barrage of teenagers. <laughs> but they're going to actually, we're going we're gonna to seed ground to them. They're going to have even more control over that space in the high school. Where they, they, There's an amazing program over there. They win student enemies every year, and they're, they're just going to keep growing and we're going to grow as well. So at least two of the organizations that we're talking with right now have facilities outside of 33 Holly as well. How do you use the space at 33 Holly differently from your outside space? Kathy Couch from the APE. <laughs> sure. Um, well, hopefully if you come on Friday or anytime soon, you can come check out the new workroom, um, which is an enormous space and much more geared towards uh, performance. We have a beautiful sprung floor that's great for dance and, and performance of any kind, um, catwalks, like you said. So it's really much more geared for performance work, the creation of new performance work. Um, and uh, as Al was kind of mentioning, you know, APs also started a new program called the Workroom Cooperative, which um, essentially allows local artists and arts organizations to buy sh time shares in a way to use the workroom over the course of the year. Um, in a repeated way. And so it really allows us to offer artists sort of a longer term home um, for exploration in at Holly Street um, that we can't do in our gallery space, uh, which has tends to, you know, have more shows that, that turn over 
monthly or six, every six weeks or so. So um, those are just some of the things. And, and Northampton Media is going to be one of the co-op members as well. And so we're hoping they can use it to explore that making that I was talking about. Um, yeah, and bring new things to life and new things to the city. And 33 Holly is coming back to life and open to the public again this Friday for an arts walk. It's right in downtown Northampton. And coming up, we'll learn more about how these arts organizations work together, how this idea was formed. Is it the only one like it in the whole country? We speak more with Kathy Couch from the APE, Joanna Farabee-Walker from the Northampton Center for the Arts, and P.L. Williams from Northampton Open Media. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're speaking with Kathy Couch, the co-director and steward at Available Potential Enterprises, the APE, Joanna Farabee-Walker, the managing director of the Northampton Center for the Arts, and P.L. Williams, executive director of Northampton Open Media, who are all housed at 33 Holly Street, which is reopening to the public again as of this Friday on the Arts Walk. The music you were hearing is from Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, one of the arts organizations that makes that place their home. It is based on the land trust model. Are there other artistic models that any three of you know of in the country that work in this same sort of way to get these arts organizations together to preserve something that we think is important as a culture, but that maybe with our tax dollars, we do not appropriate enough money to preserve? Uh, um, <laughs> a recurring theme on the show. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we think there's maybe one other in the country uh-huh. um, that works in a similar model. Uh, I was. Where's that? Do you know? In California, I was somewhere I think yeah. in the Bay Area. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, there aren't there aren't very many. I mean, there's lots of people that are thinking about space and and art space in in lots of different ways. But this is the f- one of the few that uses the land trust model to do that, and I think is based. Similarly to what your earlier guest was talking about in terms of forest land, but like how do we uplift space um, for art making, for creativity as this resource that we all need to have access to. Um, And that really adds to the vitality of a community and our lives. And so really building on that land trust model, preserving space and land in perpetuity for particular use, that was really the heart of it. And we are so far along. on that and you know just now going to even breathe more life into this land and keep carrying it forward um who knows what people will do in there um i feel like i'm projecting a little bit but in the opening pages of northampton arts trust they mentioned that this is the first project uh 33 holly is the first building project in this model are you looking at other spaces to expand it I know that's hard to ask, like, right after you reopen (laughs) the first space, but but are you? (laughs) We are not actively looking at the moment, but um, I know we all feel pretty exhausted, but... But I think it is the intention behind the founding of the trust that, you know, somebody, if we could find a way, somebody maybe has a a structure on their land and they want to donate that to the Arts Trust in theory that could be held as like an artist studio. We don't need to have such enormous spaces always be (laughs) what we're stewarding. Um, But, you know, similar to other land trusts, like the Kestrel Land Trust, for instance, um, you know, people are always continuously like donating more land. or money towards the purchase of other space to to preserve that kind of use. And so um, who knows? We hope that we might explore things like that in the future. 
That's Kathy Couch from APE at 33 Holly. Joanna Faraby-Walker, tell us about some other organizations and arts organizations that you're working with as Northampton Center for the Arts at the same place, 33 Holly in Northampton. Well, we have a wide variety of artists that use our spaces, and we also offer our own programming. So we have classes going on all the time, adult dance classes, visual art classes. We have, um, today's Monday, right? Tomorrow, there's a daily writing class starting. If anyone's trying to do some daily writing, it's not too late to join that. Um, we work with Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, like you mentioned. Uh, K&E Theater Group does their musical season through the Northampton Center for the Arts. This art gallery is a whole new entryway into, like the Center for the Arts has traditionally been more of a performing arts space. Um, this is, we're on a learning curve right now, learning how to manage an art gallery, but uh, we're doing a good job, I think, and we have monthly exhibits planned all the way through the end of August. So if you come to our new building open hours, which are Wednesday, Thursday, Friday from 10 to 7 p.m. and Saturday from noon to 7, you should be able to see not only the new building, but also um, exhibit in the new art gallery and a separate exhibit in what we're calling the split level gallery, which is the upper level and the lower level of the building. So there's art everywhere all the time. Visual art, dance, music. Tell us about the new dance studio. Well, it's the dance studio was actually the first space in the building. We've been using it all along, but it is, um, it's Carol's Dance Studio. And it's newly improved because now it has, it always had a beautiful wood floor, which was great in its own way, but it was a little bit slippery and a little bit dangerous. So in the, just in the past month, it has gotten a gorgeous new gray Marley floor. So yeah. now it's um, <laughs> even better for all kinds of dance. Named in honor of our dear friend, Bill Newman, ACLU attorney and a radio host mother, Carol. Yes, thank you, dancer. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and before we run out of time, P.L. Williams from Northampton Open Media. We missed this, but I'm assuming it might be available on your website. You were talking about remaking movies. I was about to ask him, what's the crowdsourced movie this year? Well, we just finished crowdsourced <laughs> Toy Story. Which right. means people from the community make scenes from Toy Story, you cobble it together, and it becomes our own community version of Toy Story. That's right. This is our ninth feature film we've remade. Um, Toy Story was very, very challenging because it's animated, and right. um, they can do things in animation that are much more difficult to do in not animation. <laughs> so uh, people were very frustrated, but but it, 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 they, we pulled it off. It happened. So. Are you going to reveal what the next crowdsourced one will be from I, Northampton Open Media? I, 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 I already actually have that information currently, but this oh. is the month where we start deciding. Oh. So, so open to suggestions, perhaps? Uh, of course. <laughs> P.L. Williams from the Northampton Open Media, Joanna Farabee Walker from Northampton Center for the Arts, and Kathy Couch from APE Available Potential Enterprises. The Arts Walk and Grand Reopening of 33 Holly is this Friday. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, we'll explore the myriad artistic worlds of Lonnie Holly. And speaking of the many ways to be, we'll chat with authors Gwen Agna and Shelley Rotner about exploring the gender landscape with kids in their new book, True You. Plus, beef. It's what's happening at Walker Farm, so we'll discover all of its grass-fed goodness on our CESA segment. The way you say that word is always gross. Beef. I do it like... <laughs> No. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. <laughs>